Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And this week we're continuing our summer of Swayze with a Red Dawn double feature. Starting with Red Dawn from 1984. Hey, it's the year I was born. It is the dawn of World War III. In Midwestern America, a group of teenagers band together to defend their town and their country from invading Soviet forces. I don't want to watch a current events film. <laughs> wasn't my plan. Man, there's, there's a lot of different directions I could go with that comment alone and this movie. I don't hate this movie. I don't hate it either, but it makes me feel uncomfortable and I don't like it. And I think it should. One of the things that has made me appreciate this movie a lot more is the story about it and how it got created and how it was written. Okay. This was initially supposed to be a wildly different movie that I think really would have resonated a lot with us in this time. And then that message got perverted by a lot of different things. This movie reminds me a lot of how we felt about Titanic. This is a great movie, but you have to have someone else write the dialogue. Like the plot points and the beats are good, but the dialogue is garbage. So let's just pretend that nobody's talking. I don't even hate the dialogue. I don't like the dialogue at all. Well, but do you not like the dialogue because of what's written on the page? Or do you not like the dialogue because of how uncomfortable it makes you feel? Two things can be true. It depends. There there are very clear moments where it is just hacky. But there's a lot of moments where it's really good dialogue, but the context in which it's been placed Mm -hmm. feels so gross that you hate it. There, There's that, but then there's also the, the greenness of the actors in the movie. So they don't necessarily know how to sell everything they're giving us. There's just, it's a weird uh, soup of not great. This movie should have been made like 20 years later. Oh, wait, it kind of was. But seriously, the exact way this movie was made mm-hmm. is what they should have done in contemporary times. Because it could have been like an Oscar caliber film if they'd done that, where you had somebody who was a little more experienced, you had the right combination of forces, and you weren't smack dab in the middle of rah-rah Reaganism. Yeah. Because that is tainting a lot of this movie. That's why it feels like a current events film. Hmm. I'm going to start off with this note. This movie is PG fucking 13. (laughs) Like... (laughs) This movie. I know, I know. For fuck's sake. The Matrix is an R and it shouldn't be. I mean, we'll we'll get into we, that. We've relaxed the rules a lot. But seriously, in fact, this is the first movie officially released with a PG-13 rating. We'll talk about the, the details of that mm-hmm. later because there were a couple of movies that retroactively got done before that yep. that were filmed and got PG-13s but hadn't been released before Red Dawn. This is the first one that was filmed to be a 13. No, it just, when it was released, it had that rating. It was the first one out in theaters. Oh, okay. But it's crazy because of the violence of this movie. (laughs) Because there is no language. There's no language. It's violence, and the violence isn't even graphic, but it's there. It's real, though. It's it's all the guns. It's all the guns. But it's, well, and the violence is so present and real and feels real. And now we're like, whatever. The budget for this movie is a bit unclear. The note for IMDb says it's $6 million. Okay. But some of the trivia states that that budget wound up ballooning 
to triple the original amount when the Department of Defense refused to offer any assistance making this movie. Okay, so that would mean it's about $18 million. I don't know if that's going off the $6 million figure. Well, okay, but how much money did it make? In its opening weekend, it made $8,230,000. Its total gross was $38,376,000. Okay. This movie was not that big a hit. Yeah, but it made its money back and made some money for the studio. So Still, mm. this was supposed to be a much bigger deal than it was. Our writing. This is where we get into the saga of this movie. Okay. Kevin Reynolds is the original writer. He gets a story and screenplay credit for this. He's mostly known for directing because after this, he does Fandango, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Waterworld, The Count of Monte Cristo, Tristan and Isolde, Hatfields and McCoys, the miniseries, and a new thing called Risen. He's worked with Kevin Costner a lot. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Reynolds originally shopped this story in Hollywood called Ten Soldiers and had several directors, including Walter Hill, turn down the script. But it was originally a super-pointed anti-war movie. The original script was literally, kids have to go defend their town, all start getting slaughtered, and it was very Lord of the Flies. And some of those elements stay in the script, but they, they get perverted earlier. But yeah. that movie, to me, is fascinating. Hmm. Just a pure, forget all of the militarism and the jingoism that gets shoved into this script. If you just strip it away at the core of these 10 kids are in the middle of a giant invasion yeah. and have to go protect their town, and then they have to deal with the fallout from that. Yeah. That's an insanely good movie. Oh, no, I, I fully agree with that. Like, I love the concept. Yeah. Of like, okay, bunch of teenagers, their school gets, what do you do? It's a survival movie. Yeah. That's great. I enjoy the premise. And I think that half of the movie is really powerful and interesting. Mm -hmm. It's a little hammy only because some of these actors are green. Yeah. But it works in a weird way. <laughs> when they're out in the woods by themselves... There's this earnestness they all have that really reads. Christ! Pull it back! Let it turn to something else. <laughs> Just let it turn to something else, okay? Listen. 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 Don't cry. Don't you ever cry again as long as you live. As long as you live, never do it. You hear me? Yeah, okay. And I, I think if you just had like a couple more years experience out of these actors, it really would have resonated. Reynolds really got his profile kicked off because Steven Spielberg was mentoring him while he made Fandango. And so he had a tie with Spielberg with the studios. Mm -hmm. Along comes John Milius. We know this name. We know John Milius because we talked about his crazy ass during Apocalypse Now. <laughs> so the studio gets involved with this movie. As one does. Mm-hmm. And they decide they want to turn this into a teen Rambo. All right. They see an opportunity to t convert this into a much bigger military rah-rah America-style movie. So they decide to bring Milius in. Yep. That's a weird choice because, interestingly enough, on MGM's board was former Nixon chief of staff Alexander Haig, who was trying to break into film. So we've got Republican operatives with MGM 
seeing an opportunity to spread a Republican message through this movie. Man, that's the GOP's dream. So Milia started some rewrites and they developed a backstory for the invasion, possibly using the model of Hitler's original plan to invade the U.S. from Mexico. And that's the basic storyline that's not in the final script, Mm -hmm. but you can tell what it is. Latin American forces team with the Soviets to come up through Mexico and invade the U.S. And that's why we're in Colorado. That's the reason why they've set it where they set it. Yeah, they're they're hiding in the mountains. Because... Haig brings John Milius to the Hudson Institute, a conservative think tank, to actually use real war college studies as the basis for this invasion. I mean, I like the war game theory stuff, so... It's, it's a very pre-Tom Clancy move, right? Totally, like, yeah. Clancy is the guy who turned this into popcorn franchise legend, and, you know, this is just an early iteration of that. But Milius wasn't excited about Haig's approach to this. His Hmm. quote was, this is going to end up a jingoistic flag-waving movie. And that's not what he wanted. Milius is a weird, complicated guy. Yes, he was a Second Amendment gun nut. Yes, he was super pro-having military. But he was also against the establishment. He's a weird dude. He's a super libertarian. And he wanted it to still be an anti-war film. Hmm. Milius' statement was, I see this as an anti-war movie in the sense that if both sides could see this, maybe it wouldn't have to happen. I think it would be good for Americans to see what a war would be like. The film isn't even that violent. The war shows none of the horrors that could happen in World War III. In fact, everything that happened in that movie happened in World War II. And he's kind of right. Yeah, I can see all that. I think if the studio left well enough alone yeah. and let Milius make this movie his own. like, Or just say, make it a little more Rambo. Like, here's our studio note. Make it a little more Rambo. Right. And then walked away. Would have been okay. Because like, that's not a bad note. That's not a that's not a bad place to lean into. Just a little bit. Yeah, and it's going to be a box office draw at that point. Oh, because totally. now you've got these characters who you're rooting for, even though you're also seeing this futility of war message. That's, in fact, why Partisan Rock shows up at the end. Mm-hmm. You know, his idea of Partisan Rock is like, this isn't heroism. All that's left is these names carved in a rock. Yeah, it's just a rock. Like, what does that mean? We don't have these kids anymore because they were fucking kids. Yeah. It's the GOP infiltration of this movie is what makes all those really yucky, uncomfortable moments pop up. And I think that's the mix that happened here. Our director for this movie is also John Milius. Okay. Reynolds actually wanted to direct this film. And the studio thought about approaching Spielberg to see if they could work something out. But Spielberg was pretty disappointed with how Fandango turned out and wasn't willing to fight for Reynolds for the studio. Uh, That's kind of fair. He's just like, I I don't think this is the right guy for this. That's fair. Plus, he was buddies with John Milius. So, you know, Milius ultimately signed for a salary of one point two five million dollars and a gun of his choice. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) I'm sure he did. Did he sign in blood, too? I mean, well, we'll get there. Oh, fuck. Filming often. Ah. First of all, Milius carried a loaded pistol on set, according to many of the actors. Okay, I want to be clear about what I know of John Milius. Okay. He sounds like an open carry guy. Yeah. Who was probably doing this perfectly safely, knew how to use a gun, and did it because I believe in open carry and Second Amendment. I think that's bullshit, but at least I don't think he was, like, waving pistols at actors on the set. When you think of a a good 
gunman, that's who you think of. That's fine. I get it. But it's also like, dude, time to place. Filming often sat well below zero degrees because they were filming this during the winter. Oh, wow. So they had to wear actual Everest assault suits in cold conditions so they could stay warm. Wow. And Milius was pretty much rushed on this production. He didn't want to rush it. He wanted to work his way through, make everything work right, make everything look good. But MGM wanted the summer release. Yeah. They desperately wanted it for summer. So he had to get it done in the winter, which is, again, we've talked about Stanley Kubrick taking like four years to make full metal jacket and he's in the UK and they're not even filming in actual conditions. Meanwhile, MGM is forcing John Milius and these kids to film in sub freezing weather to get a movie out for the fucking summer. Not necessary. It's real gross. Jeez. Uh, I, I think there's an element to this production that if they'd have just left well enough alone, it had been amazing. The cast underwent an eight week military training course so they could look like they actually knew what they were doing with the weapons. Okay. They worked with military advisor Dale Dye, who also worked on Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers, and Platoon. Many of the fighting techniques they learned actually came from indigenous tribes, including the Apache. Okay. Which I thought was very interesting that that's how they learned how to do hand-to-hand combat. Real Green Berets helped with the boot camp training. The actors trained with real weapons so that they wouldn't make mistakes when they were using the fake weapons on set. Okay, I like that. As Leah Thompson quoted, we went to a firing range and there was every kind of gun you could imagine. Because they do fire nearly every type of gun you could think of in this damn movie. I mean, that makes sense. And I appreciate the thoroughness. Like, we want you to shoot a gun. You need to learn how to shoot all the different... You need to know what it sounds like and what it does. And Well, the action sequences look so incredible in this movie, partly because when they run into military-grade weapons with the Soviets... They look like they know what they're doing, which means you can fast track these montages because you get the perspective that, okay, they've learned how to do this stuff. They've watched and and learned how all this works. Mm -hmm. During training, actors only got to eat when their instructor felt they earned it. Sounds like boot camp bullshit. Yep. And after boot camp, Milius had the cast become an opposing force for actual National Guard exercises as a final training regiment. They participated in a war game as an insurgent group. Okay, that's kind of awesome. I know. Like, that's like, okay, you've been playing paintball for a while. Now we're going to put you in the big leagues. I mean, like, and that's fun. That's cool. That gives it some real stakes. I like it. I think the really great thing about it is so long as, you know, we know we're not using live rounds and it is an imitation. It's safe and everybody knows that this is a practice thing. The cool thing about it is you have to be an insurgent group in this story. You have to learn how to yeah. work together and it's fool just, these guys. It's just LARPing. That's all it is. But I think it's a really, I think it's honestly a really cool thing, provided that conditions are safe. And yeah, no, no. we've heard enough horror stories to worry about that. It's fair. It's fair. But uh, LARPing can be cool. But most importantly, there are no computer effects, chroma key composites, or miniatures in this movie. Everything was done at fucking scale. I love it. Which, if you see the explosions yeah. in this movie, are goddamn impressive. That is why their budget went nuts. Again, the Department of Defense refused to help them. Mm. And that made it even harder because you don't have the military on set providing you certain supplies and things to fill out scenes. You've got to make all of that. It was 1984. What was the military doing? 
uh, bombing Grenada, invading Panama, they were busy. doing all sorts of bullshit. They were that, busy. Fighting wars that nobody knew were actually going on. Just oh, See, it's current events, Phil. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> the napalm scene was created by filling plastic plumbing tube with gasoline and then setting off the explosions in sections oh, in that okay. controlled area. Okay, that's cool. I mean, we see it from a distance. Yeah, but that's cool how they did it. Yeah. The blast from an exploding jet was so strong it knocked five trailers off their foundations on set. And all of the vehicles were supplied by the company Velizat Motion Picture Rentals. One of the brothers, Renault, quoted, Milius knew the serial numbers of every vehicle on set. Okay. (laughs) By the sheer number of vehicles that are fucking there, he knows the serial numbers of each make and model. That's a little nuts. Crazy. Well, that's John Mellis. That's John Mellis, but uh, I mean, like, okay, some people just have like crazy, awesome memories, and they just remember stupid shit. Like, you read it once, and you just remember it. But that's, he doesn't but... know the serial numbers beforehand. I know. That's just unless weird. he's got a book. Maybe that's why. Just because just... I could see if you've having if you're having to work with that much stuff on set, and you're having mm-hmm. to call it out all the time. After a while, you figure out the serial numbers, and you're just like, bring me that one. Mm-hmm. Again, I think everything off-putting about this movie feels contextual more than it does the actual style. Although, I will say there is something very Lenny Riefenstahl and very Soviet filmmaking incorporated in the style of this movie. Okay, I was about to say, you're going to have to help me out with that name. Lenny Riefenstahl, who made Triumph of the Will and Olympia, the Nazi propaganda films. Okay. Who's also studied in film classes. And then, you know, Soviet propaganda, stuff like Battleship Potemkin that was filmed around the time of the Russian Revolution, but films that are now studied for their actual filmic style, okay, but were also intense pieces of propaganda. And there are some elements in the way this movie is filmed without getting super film school about it that remind me of images from those movies. Some of the way they frame shots, they show things. And also the very almost hammy earnestness of the acting Mm -hmm. is very similar to those types of movies. Okay. Because it's very presentational and in your face and just numbs you to the complete earnestness of these characters. Like you just buy it after a while by sheer force of will. (laughs) Any notes on our writing or directing? No, I mean, I don't really like the, I think the, the dialogue is my biggest problem with this film. And the direction is, I mean, it's fine. I mean, they did do a good job with the explosions and the actual, like, warfare stuff, which is a really big, important thing in this film. But I just wish the dialogue was better. Hmm. I think for me, it's very hit or miss. There are moments where it's really bad, but there are moments, I mean, when they see their dad in the camp. Boys! Avenge me! Avenge me! It's overwrought language. I guess it's the acting that really captivates me, though. Hmm. I think you've got really great acting that's just kind of blowing over really bad dialogue writing at times. Yeah, yeah I don't know. There, there are some moments, though, where I'm like, Damn, this feels so real right now. All right, let's talk about our cast. Our cast. And first up, the whole reason we're here, the whole reason we're talking about this movie, Mm -hmm. it's Mr. Patrick Swayze playing Jed. 
Richard. How do you feel about Swayze in this one? Uh, it feels very similar to The Outsiders. He's he's a big brother. Mm-hmm. That's I mean he's playing the big protective brother, and that's okay. But I just he's not. You know, he's not the most interesting one in this film. Hmm. I'm going to let you save who you think that is until we get there, because I want to hear that later. He's having to do so much heavy lifting is part of the problem. Yeah, and he, the dialogue's not there for him, so then his acting feels a little more overwrought. It just doesn't make very much sense, and it's just... I've seen better from him. I think he's on a totally different level than everybody else is. Mm-hmm. I think everybody else is in and out of a super serious character. Mm-hmm. And I buy what he says about this movie. He stated he was in character the entire time of filming. I became Jed Eckert. And I believe that I, from the performance he's giving. I believe that. And I think that given everything I've known about Patrick Swayze is that he's that big brother protective gentleman. Yeah. So that feels right and that's okay. But yeah, I just, I think re- honestly it comes down to he is trying really hard and the dialogue's not there for him and it just it doesn't it doesn't play for me. Hmm. You know, moments that really get me are, you know, when he's when he's staring his brother in the face after they've shot his dad mm-hmm. and just being like shove it down, which I I hate the message. I hate the message like, that it's sending. Like I I have to keep going. I can't deal with this right now. Well, just more so it's like Take this, use it, make your... I mean, it's way more Mm -hmm. of a bad, toxic response to death. But it is a great scene. Oh, he's in a war zone. Yeah. You you gotta survive. It's it's a survivalist tactic. And the final moment with his brother is just... beautiful. Beautiful. It it is. And it's all him. He's He makes that Mm -hmm. scene work. Like I said, there are moments in this movie that he just makes work just because he's acting his ass off. And that's kind of amazing. He actually got frostbite during filming Hmm. of the movie. They were in really bad weather. Mm -hmm. And he said, it still feels like someone shoving toothpicks up my fingernails when when I get too cold. Mm. Yeah. Milius wound up giving most of the actor's notes through Patrick Swayze. Oh. His quote, of course, a lot of times it didn't make me very popular with the actors. (laughs) Of course not. (laughs) The thing about it is, is, I normally would say that's a bad move for a director, but when Milius is dealing with as much as he is special effects wise and visually, Mm -hmm. I can understand him being like, you're the leader of this crew. You're the leader of this insurgent group. So everything's going to go through you. Yeah. And it's kind of a smart tactical move from an actor perspective. It just kind of sucks when you have to be the fall guy and Milius has a bad note for an actor. Oh, yeah. I love having to give notes to actors. Yeah. They love hearing from the stage manager. It's it's rough. So it's it's a mixed response there. But I kind of get why that might have happened. Sometimes you have to outsource things just to get shit done. Yeah. And we have a who could have been better. Ooh. Originally cast in the role, but dropping for other commitments, Emilio Estevez. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. We could have had the two Estevez brothers on screen for this. Patrick Swayze's better. I, I accept this. Because Emilio would have underacted those lines because he's a more subtle actor. He is more subtle. And that would have played even worse. Probably. I agree. Unless you've got like Aaron Sorkin walk and talk kind of stuff going on with this movie. And that wasn't going to happen with John Milius making it. Mm-mm. Next up, we have C. Thomas Howell as Robert. I think he is the more interesting actor and huh. character in this film. He's more compelling. He is because he's better written. 
honestly. Yeah, no, he's he's the better one in this he, film. Jed doesn't have a through line. True. Jed's entire line is, I am the protector of this group and I have to be the leader, yep. even though I've got to shove down my emotions to do it. Mm-hmm. Robert has a single track and we see it in one single moment, mm-hmm. drinking the blood of that deer. And all of a sudden, everything flips for him. He's a fucking killer. Like that line. All that hate's gonna burn you up, kid. Keeps me warm. <laughs> he, he is the ultimate soldier in that he can perfectly acclimate and thrive in this environment. And the funniest thing about it is if this were that pure survival movie, Mm -hmm. the conflict between him and Jed would be so wonderfully Mm -hmm. delicious. Like all of that butting heads between the ultimate soldier and the emotional leader. Oh, yeah. That would just be perfect movie watching gold. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we don't spend enough time with them to really get that. Yeah, but he's the more interesting one. And that's a good difference between the two of them because it's so unusual. And that is until you're in that situation, you would not necessarily know that someone would have that in them. And like, it doesn't make it, there's nothing bad or wrong with him. It's just he is fine in this situation. Yeah. And he is the guy who's going to come out. Yeah. Of course, he's returning as Ponyboy from The Outsiders. Mm -hmm. So we've already talked about his credits. The fun note for him, having been a rodeo cowboy, he helped teach the cast how to ride horses. (laughs) Next up, Leah Thompson as Erica. Marty's mom. This is Leah Thompson's first appearance on Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What? Is it now? It is. Wow. Before this movie, she was in Jaws 3D and All the Right Moves. Okay. The Tom Cruise vehicle. And after this movie, Back to the Future, Space Camp, Howard the Duck, Some Kind of Wonderful, Back to the Future Part 2, Back to the Future Part 3, Dennis the Menace, The Beverly Hillbillies, The Little Rascals, Caroline in the City, tons of television and family stuff, Switched at Birth, and most recently of note, Sierra Burgess is a loser. Oh yeah, she is in that movie. Leah Thompson said this was the most fun she ever had making a movie. Well, it's kind of sad. But okay, there's something about like the magic of one of your first couple films. And like getting to be kind of a badass chick. This is so different than anything yeah. else she would do in her career. No, I agree. So I, I, on the one hand, it's sad because, oh, you've had such a long career since this film and none of them have been as fun. But I also get like some of its nostalgia and magic. And then also she got to do something totally different than what she's done since. Oh, yeah. So that's no. fair. You know, it's funny. One of the uh, friendly fire bits was talking about her in, a, in the beret. Oh, yeah. Looking like Che Guevara. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And this sort of revolutionary look for her. It's just so interesting to see her playing this. I love it. It's such a fascinating artifact. You're like, you will never. I don't think you would ever see a role like this, even in the future. I don't know how Red Dawn 2012 is going to come about, but it's still not going to be as badass as these two ladies. I don't think so. I mean, Sarah Connor is the only thing to hold up against this. That's true. Sarah Connor and Ellen Ripley are probably the only two close things. And the craziest part about this is they're supposed to be teenagers. Yeah, they're supposed to be teenagers. And they're convincingly teenagers. That's the one thing I think about this entire cast Mm -hmm. is, yeah, they're probably all in their 20s, but they are convincing teenagers. Yes. 
they are wearing their emotions on their sleeves and fucked up in the head. Well, I think one of the things that they also did a little bit better in the 80s is that if all of your teenagers are played by 20-year-olds, all the adults are being played by 40 and 50-year-olds. Yes. Usually. I know it's not always the case. I mean, we got Alan Rucks all over the place, but still, they, they it's like, okay, comparatively, we're all the same. But it's it's a testament also to just good acting of being yeah. convincing in that. They did film a love scene between her and Andy, play mm-hmm. Powers Booth's so, character. Yeah. It got cut from the film because test audiences were very uncomfortable with the age difference. I 100% agree. I 100% agree. The interesting note is that Leah stated that scene was the main reason I took the movie. It was such a terrific scene. Oh, yeah. Well, that's kind of sad for the performance. But in the film, it their relationship comes off as more c- creepy. It's one-sided for one thing. It, it feels very one-sided because there's this element of she's kind of got like a schoolgirl crush on him. Yes. And then all of a sudden it's like there's a turn where he's almost like not predatory, but it's just it's weird. His end of it is very weird. I think that's because they filmed it. Maybe. I think because they had filmed that scene, it reads that way. Instead, if it was from the very beginning, she's into him and he will never reciprocate. But he is also like has a soft spot for her because she's a kid. Yeah. Then it would read like, differently and feel better. Yeah. And it's because they actually went through with that story and then left it on the cutting room floor. That I think that's why it reads badly. And I think it plays really well for her character that he gets killed and she has to suffer that having felt those feelings and then nothing ever happens with them. And then he's dead. Yeah. That's such a huge thing for a teenager to have to go through. We get Charlie Sheen as. Matt Eckert. Mm-hmm. This is his feature film debut. Not technically, he was in some things uncredited because he's Martin Sheen's kid. Yep. But as an actual actor, this, this is, is his, his first, first big thing. After this, he did 1985's The Boys Next Door, Lucas, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Platoon, Wall Street, Young Guns, Eight Men Out, Major League, Navy Seals, Men at Work, Hot Shots, Hot Shots Part Deux, The Three Musketeers, The Chase, Major League Two, Money Talks, Being John Malkovich, Spin City, Two and a Half Men, and Anger Management. Fell off a cliff there right around the mid-90s. No, it wasn't the mid-90s. It was the 2000s when he fell off because it was during Two and a Half Men where he really went off the deep end. He's always had struggles with alcoholism and addiction, and he kind of had a yucky part, and then he did really good for a long time. I mean, he was doing Two and a Half Men. He was unstoppable. Him and John Cryer... And honestly, those first season, couple seasons are actually pretty funny. They're great. And, you know, those same demons got back to him and he just went too far. But that run through the late 80s and into like 1990, that, like, that run of Platoon, Wall Street, Young Guns, Eight Men Out, and Major League. God damn. I remember seeing Major League in the theater. And like, I remember. Those are Oscar nominated performances. Some of them, yeah. In, in Platoon and Wall Street, well, I haven't seen Platoon. In Wall Street, he's fucking incredible. I have not seen that. He's great. I was. I, I want to see it. We need to add it to the list. I mean, he's wide-eyed ingenue, but he's That's great okay. in that role. He's pretty. That's okay. And perfect to play against the scum of Michael Douglas's character. Even better, he plays Scuzzy well. I know. According to Powers Booth, Sheen walked up to him one day during the scene and asked, hey, am I doing a good job? And Powers Aww. Booth reassured him, you're doing just fine. That's sweet. There was a time when Charlie Sheen was kind of a normal human. But also, like, I love that, you know, being Martin Sheen's kid and 
okay, so we all know the whole thing with the Sheens. Their real last name is Estevez. Yeah. And they all have Hispanic names. Yep. So Charlie is actually Carlos. That's his real name. Emilio Estevez, he's the only one who said, I'm keeping my real name. Yep. And he didn't want to, he did not want to go the same route as his dad. And Charlie did. Charlie followed suit. And yeah, it's just interesting. So it's kind of cool to see like, okay, even though that's your dad, you still were kind of like, you didn't have a big head about yourself then. I do like him in this movie. I feel about him kind of the same way I feel about Swayze. Yeah. The writing's not great. So he's doing his best that he can. The best scenes we have of him are when he's with his brother. They really are. If he had gotten a little bit more of the flavor that C. Thomas Howell had, I think he would have played that intensity really well. Like, I'm very well suited for this life. I don't know. He's supposed to be a different character, though. I mean, he's supposed to be still sort of the the younger. I'm saying a little bit of that flavor. Yeah. I think what have been really cool with him is starting off being really scared and innocent. And then towards the end, we see him like, oh, no, I'm fine. I'm good. I've I've acclimated to this life very well. Yeah. That would have been good for that character. Because we have one who kind of always stays the protective, like this is, I'm just trying to get through it. And then we have one that's kind of always, yeah, I'm in, I got this. So it would have been better to see that progression and to see him play that would have been cool. I would like it. To see him become independent Mm -hmm. of his brother and finally separate that. Yep. And then to get it, to lose him. Yep. That would make it even more heart wrenching. Yeah, that would have been awesome. But I do think he and Swayze together are just gold. Oh, love them together. They're great. They are. We get Jennifer Grey as Tony. <sighs> this is the first time we'll be talking about Jennifer Grey, not the last time during this series. Nope, 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 nope. Before this, she was in Reckless the same year. Mm-hmm. So this is her second film role. After this, The Cotton Club, American Flyers, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Dirty Dancing, and then kind of nothing goes away for a while. Yeah. Recently, she's done Red Oaks. She's had a little minor run on the current season of Grey's Anatomy. Yep. And she's going to be in a new movie called Bittersweet Symphony coming out soon. Yep. Looks like an indie project. She kind of just became an indie working actress and she, doing stuff on the side. She went away and then she got a nose job and then she came to television for a while playing a version of herself. She's Joel Grey's daughter. Yes. Joel Grey of, you know, Broadway amazingness. As much fun as it is to watch Leah Thompson really fun to watch her jennifer gray's even fucking better i love them together they They are are great together they're a great duo tony is in some ways even more interesting to me because leah thompson's character has that am i gonna invest myself full into this war role or am i still gonna be a kid tony on the other hand is just like fuck it i'm in yeah and again to see a a woman take on that role as such a badass the fact that she's the one that goes and bombs the Soviet club mm-hmm. where they're watching the movies and just like walks away, pretty girl, pretty American girl, and then boom, yeah, and runs out shouting Wolverines, and she opens that montage. I know. That's fucking amazing. She's, it's great. Like She's all in on being bait. She's good. I love her. It's great. I think that's a testament to Milius in some ways of trusting trusting actors to do that stuff when he thinks they're good enough to do it. Maybe. We get Ben Johnson as Mr. Mason, the farmer guy they run into out in the outskirts of town. He started in 1939. Before this, he was in Mighty Joe Young, Rio Grande, Shane, One-Eyed Jacks, The Rare Breed, Hang 'em High, The Wild Bunch, The Last Picture Show, The Getaway, 1972, Dillinger, 
the Sugarland Express, the town that dreaded sundown, the greatest, and the swarm. And after this, Radio Flyer and Angels in the Outfield. Oh, Angels in the Outfield. He's a Western legend. I was about to say, I was like, it's cowboy right here. I kind of like his character. I actually wanted more of him. I would have liked them coming back and forth a little more to his place to get news of the, the supplies and, and to check in. And yeah, little, a little bit more of him would have been good. It would help so we didn't feel so much drag when we're out in the forest. That, and it would have been good if we had a more substantial check-in with him before shit went down. So Maybe. We, so we understood why this is the guy we trust and we're follow like we're taking his instructions. Yeah. That that would have helped. No, it didn't have to be sub- like I say substantial but like just give us a little more in- info on who this dude is. I need like 30 seconds when they get to the gas station because yeah. to me the the immediacy of the opening yeah. is one of the best things about the movie. I, uh, fair, fair, but there should have been some like why are we going to this dude's house? Like why are we doing like oh, th- th- this is his this is what he's done his whole life. Blah blah, he knows things. Well, yeah, and it's we, sh- we should they, we should have had that dialogue. When they get to the gas station, yeah. I think it's what's his face? I can't remember the, the I don't kid's remember name. Anybody's character. But it's his, it's a, it's one of the kids' dads. Yeah. And it's just like once you once you feel safe, go to Mr. Mason's. Yeah. Don't go back to town. Yeah. If you just said that line, we'd be fine there. Because mm-hmm. then you can explain it away when you get to his house. Yeah. And it just it would have broken things up a little bit more so we're not dragging in the middle part of this movie because we are in the woods an awful long time for a while. We get, first time he's been mentioned on this show, Harry Dean Stanton. Fuck. As Mr. Eckert. Mr. 80s. Is that who that is? Oh, he started his first acting roles in TV in 1954. Like, the 80s were his time. All of our movies from our childhood have Harry Dean Stanton in them. Oh, yeah. Let me run through this list. Before this, these are only the big movies. Yeah. How the West Was Won, Cool Hand Luke, Kelly's Heroes, Two Lane Blacktop, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, Dillinger, The Godfather Part 2, Wise Blood, Alien, The Rose, Private Benjamin, Escape from New York, One from the Heart, Christine, Repo Man, and Paris, Texas. After this, Fool for Love, Pretty in Pink, The Last Temptation of Christ, Wild at Heart, Twin Peaks Firewalk with Me, Down Periscope, Fire Down Below, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, The Straight Story, The Green Mile, Alpha Dog, Inland Empire, Big Love, The Avengers, Lucky, and one of the last things he did was the updated Twin Peaks series. I'm very tired now. Man's a screen legend. He is. He's amazing. He's good in everything. And he's good in this. <laughs> Five minutes. Five minutes is great. That's all you need from Harry yeah. Dean Stanton to make a movie. Love it. And finally in our main cast, Powers Booth as Andy. Man, he looks young. <laughs> he went. He's one of those guys who once he went gray, he just stayed the same age for so long. So this feels like so much. This feels like he was 12 in my brain. It is so fascinating to look at his credits mm-hmm. because he's had a lot of he's an it guy and now he's kind of under the radar. Oh, he's back and now he's gone. Mm-hmm. He's had like 12 careers, basically. Yeah, but very interesting. Before this, he did The Goodbye Girl, Cruising, and most notably played Jim Jones in the TV movie Guiana Tragedy. After this, Tombstone, Sudden Death, Nixon, U-Turn, Men of Honor, Deadwood, mm-hmm. Sin City, has a stint on 24, MacGruber, Hatfields and McCoys, Nashville, and the last big thing he did was Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yep. Some interesting notes on his character. Andy was originally written as a proud conservative military man 
that was anti-war. Okay. So a complicated character. Fair. Totally. And when they rewrote him to become very common denominator, just a presence to be the adult for these kids, Booth was pretty disappointed. That's fair. His quote was, Milius cut out the emotional life of the movie's characters. I was supposed to be the voice of reason in that movie, but certain cuts negated my character. That sounds accurate. Again, it goes back to, if it's just about this crew, Mm -hmm. it's a whole different thing. It's when you insert Mm -hmm. all of the political imagery of it and the mayor and yeah. I mean it's so th- it's it's weird because those things are important to the story and yet they feel so propagandist. Oh because they totally are. No, it's the it's they so it, that's so how it's used. And I mean one of the things we were talking about when we were watching this is like this is what people point to now like the doomsday preppers and the people who want to have a bunker filled with guns under their house. This is what they're looking at. This is that. This is what they're thinking is happening. Well, and more importantly, it's the it's the white nationalist incels now, yeah, who move past that mm-hmm. into misanthropy and hating people, and yeah. and I mean, it's a very fascist movie, mm-hmm. and it's a shame because it doesn't need to be. I thought about this. I was like, you need to remake this movie, but have these kids going against the American government. Yep, that's the interesting movie to make. Yep, now they're revolutionaries. Well, no, what this is, is, well, the sad thing is that the story now is it's the kids trapped in school. Yeah. They don't get out. Yeah. That's what it is. And I mean, there, there's there's so many different directions you can mm-hmm. take that that idea, because the other thing about that is you have a revolution, but how do you deal with that? And that becomes reactionary. And there's so much conflict huh. that can be built from this main storyline and by making it such a propaganda piece, they cut out the emotional stakes of the movie. Like, like I said, just leave well enough alone. Mm-hmm. Let John Milius make this movie and see what it becomes. Yeah, and I was like, this is the situation. Lean into the Rambo a little bit. Go. That's it. That's it. Unfortunately, it probably would have been a big old fucking downer. So <laughs> we have Arpons. Yes, we do. We have Ron O'Neill playing Bella, Colonel Bella, the Nicaraguan guy. He was young blood priest in Superfly. The oh, lead. Okay. Darren Dalton playing Daryl was also from The Outsiders. Yep. He uh, betrays the group. So sad. Brad Savage playing Danny. He was a child actor, including in Salem's Lot. But more importantly, he works in corporate stuff in film and has a production company with one Greg Grunberg. Ah, lucky, lucky Greg. William Smith playing Strelnikov, also from, from The, the Outsiders. Outsiders, had no special training in languages because after years of military and CIA NSA experience, he was already fluent in Russian and other languages. That's cool. I got the right guy for that one. Mm-hmm. We have Vladek Shabal playing Brutchenko. We have seen him in our Bond series. Ooh. He was in From Russia with Love and Casino Royale, 1967. Oh, interesting. Frank McRae playing the teacher Mr. Teasdale. He was a former football player who had a nice run in the 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. including the movies The Wizard. And a later Bond film, License to Kill. Oh. Roy Jensen playing Mr. Morris. I think this is the gas station guy. Okay. He was in Soylent Green and Chinatown, has a long career as a character actor. Pepe Serna as Aardvark's father. He's another big deal. He had a run with Scarface, Buckaroo, Bonsai, and Silverado. Oh, wow. Yeah. He had a good run there. Lane Smith as Mayor Bates. You would remember him from as the coach from Mighty Ducks. The dad in Son-in-Law and my cousin <laughs> yeah. Vinny. Oh, God, Son-in-Law. 
I need to go watch that again. That movie slams. Lane Smith is a name no one knows, no, but a face everyone recognizes. He's a Tobolowski. It's that guy. Yep. Yeah. And finally, Judd Omen playing Nicaraguan captain. He was in Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Dune. All right, trivia. This film originally made the Guinness Book of World Records for having, at that time, the most acts of violence of any film. <laughs> 134 acts of violence per hour which equates to 2.23 acts of violence per minute of film. That's low. This is a PG-13 movie. There's not blood everywhere, though, so... If this was made today, it'd be a hard R. Oh. Hard R. Oh, yes, no, there would be so many people talking about how horrible this is for everybody. This is garbage. You cannot do this. It would be great and horrible at the same time. funny, because it kind of was made today, but... We'll Shut up. <laughs> The movie was originally set in the actual town of Calumet, Michigan. They wound up moving it to Calumet, Colorado, which was a more central location that fit the invasion plot. The actual Calumet, Colorado is a tiny mining town that got abandoned in the 1970s. But there's one legacy of Michigan that survives. Wolverines! Gotta name the football team after the, uh, the college there. Yep. Five out of the 36 original paratroopers in the opening scene wound up an hour off course, one getting stuck in a tree. He had to convince the locals he wasn't a Soviet soldier. That's awesome. (laughs) I love it. I will say, when you see those parachutes dropping in, it is frightening. You're like, what the fuck? So my brother's in the military. Yep. And his specialty is field artillery, which is big guns. And once when he was stationed not far from where we live, we actually hadn't seen him in a while. So we went up to go see him. do. They were doing a jump. Yeah. Uh, they were jumping out of planes. And that's where they throw the howitzer out the back end of the plane. And then you see them jump. And we got to watch that. And let me tell you, that's pretty badass. Yeah. It is really cool to see that happen. So when we saw that in the film, I was like, oh, I've seen something like that happen. And it's just like, oh, yeah, this would scare the shit out of you. What I hate is that immediately they start firing on this town. Yeah, that makes because sense. Because that's not what any military would do. The Soviet, first of all, this movie could never happen. The Soviets did not have the resources to ever actually pull this shit off. And they wouldn't have been able to coordinate with the Central American mm-hmm. communists because they all believe different shit. That's true. But more importantly is like, they wouldn't have gone in and started shooting. They would have done that to be like, be scared, we're here, and then started marching through the town issuing orders Mm -hmm. that's how a military occupation works you don't start shooting people unless they're shooting back like you have to be smart so that is one thing about this movie that gets me is like "Eh, that's not right Mm -hmm. but it gets the point across very convincingly we mean business the code name for the army operation that captured saddam hussein was called operation red dawn Hmm. and john milius said at the time that he felt very honored by the issuance of that name i believe that During filming, two CIA men visited the sets after reports of Russian tanks in the area. They were very relieved to hear they were made for a movie. Tony blows up the, quote, Soviet American Friendship Center. Center. There was a real-life left-wing group called the National Council of American Soviet Friendship, who sympathized with the Soviets and communists, Mm -hmm. and denounced the movie as paranoid and militarist. They're not wrong! They are since defunct because of the breakup of the Soviet Union. But Mm -hmm. nonetheless, interesting moment there. Yeah? 
people thought the gas station was real on mm-hmm. set and tried to get gasoline from it. Yeah, that's cute. And had to be told, this is a set. Yep. And finally, the movie was banned in Finland for excessive of violence, violence. Yep. problems against Finnish foreign policy, and for being, quote, too anti-Soviet. Mm. That's one interesting thing you can learn about Finland. They were very tied to the Russian Revolution and were very communist for a long time. Hmm. All right. How many RPGs are we going to give this movie? Role-playing games? Okay. Rocket-propelled grenades, which uh, they launch at so many tanks. I'm going to go straight down the middle and say a 2.5. Okay. Because I like the concept and the idea of this film, and mo- the execution of all the special effecty stuff is cool. And I like the awesome ladies, and I like C. Thomas Howell. But the dialogue is really bad, which makes some of the acting look really, really bad. And I don't want to watch this again. So this is a 2.5 for me. I'm going to go slightly higher with a three. Okay. Because I did buy some of the acting. I really enjoyed watching the performance of it. Mm-hmm. I think I tuned out a lot of the dialogue, especially once I heard the propaganda coming from it. Yeah. I really kind of went, I don't need to pay attention to most of this. Yeah. I want to watch what's going on mm-hmm. with them instead. To me, you could turn the sound off from this movie and it would be a really just great film experience in some ways. So I, I, I brain a little higher and I would say I don't need to see it again for a while, but I want to revisit it under that lens of what Milius really was trying mm-hmm. to do just for the, the exercise of going, when is it hitting that mark and when has it gone off the rails and is it obvious that this was coming from outside? Mm-hmm. That's that's sort of the only reason I'm like, I want to revisit that. Mm. So it, it could be an interesting rewatch from that lens and perspective. But well, well, you know, we, we're going to have a rewatch because we're going to go watch uh, as this is a double feature because we are completionists here at Macintosh and Mod. We are going to go watch the 2012 Red Dawn featuring the bisexual dreamboat Chris Hemsworth. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I already know the story for this movie. I. I don't know. I I know that this it was filmed before Thor came out, but it was released after Thor. So it was one of those like, yeah, it was it was like during the bankruptcy of the studio or something like that. There is so much stuff about this movie and I would prepare yourself for a real slog of a watch on this one. Cool, but there's there there's pretty. I like pr- pretty helps. Pretty helps. Pretty only goes so far. It's okay. Pretty helps. It helps. <laughs> All right, let's go watch the other one. Okay. Wolverines! All right, we're back. We watched Red Dawn 2012. A group of teenagers look to save their town from an invasion of North Korean soldiers. Yep. Mm -hmm. That's what happened in this movie. I've seen worse movies. True, 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 true. But I've also seen many, many better movies. Oh, yes, we have. Here's what's really interesting. This movie had all of the action elements Mm -hmm. and the pacing that we wanted in the original. Yes. But none of the context. Correct. They got the DOD Alexander Haig full propaganda treatment with Mm -hmm. this one. Yes. They stripped away all of the nuance that Milius managed to slightly keep in and again i still leave going i just wanted the kids in the woods lord of the flies story that's what i wanted i don't know that i wanted that i really liked 
that they had them going back and forth between the woods and the city. That's true. We Be- needed more back and forth. With the original. Right. Because that broke it up. And they did their montage really, really well with them getting acclimated and learning and training. That was really great. Except for the fact that they have Chris Hemsworth's character doing a narration that ruins all of it. We did not. If you got rid of that narration, that montage is perfect. It really is. It shows them training, you know, target practice, everything. I'm already out of this movie from the second we learned that Jed is an ex-Marine. He's not an ex-Marine. He's just home. Molly, that's true. The fact that he's military already wipes out all of the really interesting context. Because I think what made Jed's character so compelling in the original is that he's also just barely not a kid. That's what made Swayze so interesting is that he has to lead them, but he's just barely a teenager. Okay, but you also have to remember, this is a 2020 world. So if you just portray it as another guy who's good with a gun, that doesn't serve the message, the propaganda message that they want. Having a Marine makes it, it's very much go armed forces. Well, I, it, doesn't, it doesn't serve that purpose. That's fine, but I hate that they went that direction. I, don't I wanted them to do what the original didn't. And instead, they went full bore into propaganda, which it, you know, when yeah. you get that far in, I'm done. I don't give a fuck about your movie anymore. <laughs> no, I get that. But I think you're being a little too harsh. I think it's important. I think to make this believable in any way, you have to have at least one person in the group who has actual survival training. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of people fumbling around, and why haven't they all gotten murdered immediately? Yeah, there's... We'll get into it in, in, in terms of the writing. Well, and here's the other thing. If nobody is former military, you have to spend time explaining how somebody might know these things. You have to spend that much more time with exposition and backstory. Knowing that somebody's former military or current military automatically cuts through all of that shit. There is a way in which you could do that in a five-minute montage based on the facts of this movie that I think could be interesting, but it would be really hard to do. So I totally agree with you that you do cut 30 minutes out of the movie, clearly, by having that in. Which, and this movie is an hour 30, and it moves. It fucking moves. It's just, it's not very. It. It's not very good. <laughs> all right. The budget for this movie was $65 million. Yeah. It opened to $14,267,000. Its gross in the U.S. was $44 million. Worldwide, it only made $50 million. So it lost money. It lost money. Okay. And I, what I do know about this movie is that it was made in 2009, and then it got shelved. Yeah. We'll so, talk about it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Our writers are Carl Ellsworth and Jeremy Passmore. Ellsworth has really done one-off episodes of television shows, so he's probably just been in writer's room. But later, he would make Red Eye, Disturbia, and the remake of The Last House on the Left. I liked Disturbia. And he is currently connected to Gremlins 3. Ooh. So a new iteration yep. of that franchise may be coming. Okay. And Jeremy Passmore did the movie Special with Michael Rappaport. That was the really weird dark superhero indie where he oh. was like super violent i don't see that and then he did the story for san andreas with the rock oh, okay which a lot of people liked as a popcorn action movie. yeah totally 
I love a popcorn action movie. That's why we're going to see Hobbs and Shaw. I mean, this is a popcorn action movie. Yeah, it is. It's just stupid. What immediately turns me off about it is it's overt propaganda. Yes. One thing I appreciated about the 84 version was, yes, it is overt propaganda, but then tucked into it is some subtext and some character development Mm -hmm. that we never get in this movie. I don't think that's true at all. Oh, man. That's how I felt about it. I don't think so at all. I felt like these were a lot of cardboard cutout characters that we were watching. Okay, we have to go through the characters with the cast. Well, I I might change my mind. Yep. But that's Mm -hmm. my initial impression. The controversy about this movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Is two things. One, as you mentioned, they were MGM was dealing with its bankruptcy mm-hmm. issues at the time. And so that delayed the movie from being released. But probably the most notable thing that prevented this movie from being released was the original villains were, were Chinese. Yeah. And the Chinese government immediately turned around to the studio because this is right at the time that we were starting to negotiate getting more American films in Chinese markets. Yep. Lots of Hong Kong investors, you see it now, are coming into American film. There's a big financial motivation, especially for big budget action films, which do really Really well well overseas in China and Hong Kong Mm -hmm. because they've got a long legacy of them. Of course. They said, we will not show this movie if you don't make the change. That's fair. It only cost them less than $1 million to make all the changes to the movie because the whole thing was done. Yeah. It was done before Thor ever came out, but they had to go back in and change it. Mm Mm-hmm. So they shifted the opening sequence, which they had an opening sequence that summarized the whole plot. I mean, we see it in the credits of this. And I think it was the same thing. They just changed some of the edits on that. Yeah. The whole point is the U.S. defaults on loans converging to an invasion of the country. So they default on these foreign debts. China was going to come in, which is such fucking rah-rah bullshit. Yep. It's those types of choices that really started to piss me off. Because... Unlike the original movie, mm-hmm. which I kind of bought the premise of, I do not under any circumstances buy the premise of this movie. The Chinese, yeah, perhaps, but when we change it to North Korea, it is fucking ridiculous. No, the premise should have been, we're here to get all your nukes. That should have been the premise of the North Koreans being here. And of course, they digitally changed all of the mm. symbols and then re-edited the, the ADR, the dialogue, to make it Korean instead of Chinese, Yep, which is a huge fucking problem. There are no Korean actors in this movie. Oh, yeah. No, I'm looking at all these people and it's like, they're not Korean. Like, they're not. And that became a huge fucking controversy at the time. Totally. That's inappropriate. It was a huge money grab from MGM. Yeah, they should have just gone straight to DVD release and been like, we're fucked, whatever. Like, let's call it a day. Let's just take our loss. I mean, yeah. I don't know, $65 million for a bankrupt movie studio, you've got to make something back. I know. you got to figure out somehow to it, squelch it. It could have been a term of their bankruptcy that they had to release all completed films. Well, also, let's, be, let's also be really clear. Who in America that saw this movie would have given a shit about that? No one. Yeah. No. Yeah. It, it was 2012. It was a different time. It was simpler. Well... <laughs> <laughs> That's that's the other thing that infuriates me about this movie is that we talked about the original being sort of a, a rallying call for militia guys. Militia and, I think it is. and then, you know, you know, the fall of the USSR and all of that, you know, the Russian scare in the Cold War. And so now this film is so tied to the recession. It is, but it's also tied to the Cliven Bundy mm-hmm. and alt-right weirdos yep. who are located in mm-hmm. Montana idaho or northern oregon and centrally focused in fucking spokane washington where this movie is set yep i know and again 
that's where the commentary can come in for this movie. That's where you could have done something really interesting about these kids who had been raised by these super right wing people. And how are they? How have they been impacted by that? Mm -hmm. How do they transcend that or not? You can have tension in the group between that, Mm -hmm. but there's none of it. They never comment on it. And I know that in 2012 or in 2009, even we really hadn't had that in prominent news. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Bundy Ranch incident didn't happen until 2013 after this movie got released, the original one. Mm-hmm. So that would have been the interesting story, but they didn't do it. They just had these kids suddenly fucking figure out how to use explosives and <laughs> military grade weapons. No, they had somebody who already had that information training them because he's former military. I guess or military, what, like, I, I don't remember at this point, but he has military training and he's there to teach them all. And you see them doing learning all that. I guess what I missed was what was his rank and understanding of all the different weapons. That's what I kind of needed. I needed a little more. He's not just like a grunt guy. He actually understood some of this. Well, he had done a tour in Iraq. We, we get that information for sure that I definitely remember because someone like, oh, my brother was so and so. And it's like. Well, I was in Iraq, but sure, that's close. Yeah. That's it. I mean, who cares? He's military. (laughs) He knows how to deal with guns and explosives. Great. Cool. That's suspension of disbelief on that one. That's fair. You're just going to have to give him that. Early drafts of the script dealt with Middle Eastern terrorists, which would have... Also been... (sighs) (sighs) Yeah. That's what they would have (sighs) been... Again, though, the weird part is that would be believable if you wrote those characters well. True. It would be more believable than fucking North Korea, who does not have the resources to invade anyone, <laughs> period. Not really. They don't. They can. They only have the resources currently to invade that little line where they cross over. They could bomb South Korea. That's about it. And if they did that, the full weight of NATO would fall on them. They know that. All of it is a ploy for negotiating tactics and status. Stupid. Like, there's no way they could survive a ground invasion. No. So it's just ridiculous. Our director is Dan Bradley. This is his only directing credit. That makes sense. But that's because he is mostly a stuntman and second unit director. Okay. With a long list of credits. Okay. Well, I will say that the action in this movie is awesome. Exactly. It's it's great. So I'm going to do an action film. He's a pretty good guy for it. He did really good with all that stuff. Have him be your stunt guy. Don't have him be your director. Yeah, but okay, we know it. But it always comes down to the writing. If the writing was perfect, he probably would have been fine with it. Uh, like, yeah, it's cool. Movies he worked on in this capacity were Reanimator, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Heathers, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, <gasps> Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, The Lawnmower Man, The Stand, the TV version, Jury Duty, How to Make an American Quilt, Independence Day, Set It Off, Being John Malkovich, Three Kings, Swordfish, Panic Room, Jackass the Movie, Adaptation, Seabiscuit, Spider-Man 2, The Bourne Supremacy, Crank, Spider-Man 3, The Bourne Ultimatum, The Bourne Legacy, and Paul Blart, Mall Cop 2. David and I saw Jackass on our anniversary one year, and it was great. Jackass is the greatest thing ever. (laughs) We had so much fun. Man, yeah, he's got a nice resume. He does. As we said, the film was completed in 2009 and planned for Thanksgiving 2010. (laughs) That's a downer for Thanksgiving. So 2012, this movie finally got a fucking release. The body count is 77. Damn. With Daryl being presumed dead. Dead. Yeah, that's fair. I'm okay with all that. 
All right, our cast. Okay. Chris Hemsworth as Jed Eckert. We've never actually talked about him on this show. We haven't. It's Thor. Not in a uh, you've been in the movie capacity, only in our current films capacity. We love him. This is so weird because had this been the first movie, I think a lot of people might have let up on it a little bit, being Mm -hmm. like, who's this new guy? He's kind of interesting. Yeah. Wouldn't have thought like too much of it. I mean, it's still not a great movie, Mm -hmm. but they would have been like, who's this guy? Yeah. Like, okay, this guy might be a great action star, but we've already seen Thor with his gorgeous hair and his super hotness while also being funny. And it's just like, oh, what's this? Before this movie was released, he was in Home and Away, the Australian television show, Star Trek, Thor, The Cabin in the Woods, The Avengers, and Snow White and the Huntsman. Yeah, so that's some really big movies for him like that made him a star. And then this comes out. It's not great. Because he's still very green in this movie. Yeah, I know. He got started here. Like, this is his first big movie. And his accent is so bad. Oh, his American accent is horrible. It's those vowels. He can't do it. We had the same problem with Charlie Hunnam on Sons of Anarchy. It's like, oh, you can't do O's at all. He can be British all day long. Yeah. He's great at that. Yeah. British, he does very well. Or that, like, you can't quite pin it down European. Great. Don't be American. Oh, no. It's real bad for him. Though, he can do a really good Southern accent. Of course, after this... Star Trek Into Darkness, Rush, Thor The Dark World, Black Hat, Age of Ultron, Vacation, In the Heart of the Sea, The Huntsman, Winter's War, Ghostbusters, <laughs> Doctor Strange, Thor Ragnarok, 12 Strong, Avengers Infinity War, Endgame, Men in Black International, and he will be in the Jay and Silent Bob reboot, and Hulk Hogan in an untitled Hulk Hogan biopic. That's good casting, though uh, Terry Bollea does not need his own film because he's a garbage human. But Chris Hemsworth will be really good in it. If it's being done outside of him, I'm sure he has producer input. But like if it's being a full warts and all WWE story told through Hulk Hogan. Who's going to play Andre the Giant in that film? Who the hell knows? Hey, Andre the Giant gave him his entire career. Oh, there's lots of Gave it to him. You got to have him. You got to have Macho Man. You've got to have a bunch of people in that movie. All right, Josh Peck as Matt Eckert. <laughs> this is like his first outing after he lost a ton of weight. Like he had gone through puberty. He lost a ton of weight. Now you say that? Yeah. But before this, he was in Snow Day, Max Keeble's Big Move, The Amanda Show, Spun, Mean Creek, Drake and Josh, mm-hmm. Havoc, The Wackness, Drill Bit Taylor, and Ice Age 2, which he had voices voice. in throughout. But the whackness was the breakout when he lost that weight. That was the first one, but nobody saw that. Of course. Uh, More people saw this. Which is sad to think about. Yeah. (laughs) After this, he played Charles Bukowski in Bukowski. Gross. The Wedding Ringer, Danny Collins, and he is currently doing the voice of Casey Jones on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And he was on that show Grandfathered with John Stamos. He's done a lot of TV and voice work now. Yeah, and he plays in the Nickelodeon group a lot because that's where he came from, and oh, they, yeah. they love revisiting. And he's not a bad actor, but he does not know what to do in this. And this is his first action film. Where is the smoldering Charlie Sheen that we had from the original? Like, Chris Hemsworth is pretty passable for a Patrick Swayze, right? Yeah, totally. For comparing. Totally. They've got a very similar performance, even though... This is a much cheesier script. They both play, I'm hot, but I can also fuck you up. I like that vibe. (laughs) (laughs) 
And also, I am very internally wrecked by what is going on. Yes, I'm into this. Josh Peck cannot hold a candle to what Charlie Sheen is pulling off. He really doesn't. And that's the sad part. He cannot reach the level that Hemsworth is. But I will say this. I like how petulant he is. That's true. He plays that way better than Charlie Sheen ever did. Sheen was being very, very internal yes. and subtle, and he didn't always need to be that. Correct. And that that is where Josh Peck is much better. But he's obnoxious for most of the film. It's just like, you're a dick. I understand you want to save your girlfriend, but stop being stupid. He keeps fucking everything up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he's the hero at the end yeah. for no fucking reason. Yeah. Well, because, you know, now his brother's dead. He's got to replace him. So He's the uh, redemption in the last five minutes of the goddamn movie. Which wasn't necessary. It was dumb. No. Josh Hutcherson as Robert Kittner. He's awesome. He's awesome. Okay, so we only recently watched Zathura, which was one of his big breakout films. I was like, oh, he grew up. He's so cute. Before this, American Splendor, One Last Ride, The Polar Express, Kicking and Screaming, Zathura, Space Adventure, RV, Bridge to Terabithia, Journey to the Center of the Earth, Cirque de Freak, The Vampire's Assistant, The Kids Are All Right, and The Hunger Games. And then after this, he does Catching Fire and Mockingjay, yeah. part one, the last, two. The last few. The Disaster Artist. Mm-hmm, which he's hilarious in. And his show on Hulu, Future Man. Yes, which is also supposed to be great. He's awesome. And his character does exactly what I wanted from the other film. He starts this out as being just the tech guy who is very adverse to all of the violence. He's not into it. He's the guy who throws up when other people get th- get killed in front of him. He hesitates. And by the end of the film, he's the tech guy who knows everything. He is confident with his gun. He is fine. He has a full, complete transformation from the beginning of the film to the end. And that's what I wanted in the last movie. And we didn't get it. Which is true. But what I hate is that because they are sanitizing a lot of the story for this version, Mm -hmm. what we miss is the real darkness that we got out of C. Thomas Howell. But see, I thought that was mostly just boring. Oh, that's what I loved about that first movie. No, That was the stuff I was interested in watching because it was more than just jingoism, rah-rah America. There's actual consequences to what these kids are doing in their psyches. That's what I wanted to see more of. I feel like that's here, too. Eh, Not as much because they're all just like, we're heroes. Well, they're going faster. He gets a little cocky. He's the one who's spray painting Wolverines on the wall. But that's also part of him developing. He's like, I can't I can't do this. And then, oh, I'm going all in. And oh, now I found my right, my good middle. I just I didn't buy it, especially with the way the movie ends. And, you know, it's just we're all going to fight together. It's Mm -hmm. like. What is this fucking right-wing bullshit? Yeah. It's just dumb. It's right-wing bullshit. Adrienne Palicki as Tony Walsh. Before this, Friday Night Lights, Legion, Electrolux, and Lone Star. After G.I. Joe Retaliation, John Wick, the TV version of About a Boy, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and The Orville. Forgettable. Pretty much. That is... Definitely the thing we're missing from this movie is Leah Thompson and Jennifer Grey. Yeah, the girls are forgettable. Like, the one girl, she's got a crush on the Chris Hemsworth character. We get that. And then he finally, like, acknowledges it. And that's nice. So that's it. And then he gets shot in the head. Yeah. Or the neck. Whatever. He dies. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. And of course, Isabel Lucas as Erica Martin. She also came from Home and Away from Australia, Mm -hmm. along with doing some other movies. 
Also before this, Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen, Daybreakers, The Wedding Party, Immortals After the Loft, The Water Diviner, Knight of Cups, and 2017's MacGyver reboot. I mean, I'll give her this. She doesn't come off as like weak damsel in distress. Like she fights. Like when she's on that bus, she she's going to get other people out too. She's good. She's all right. She's almost like she's drugged out. A little bit, but that could, I mean, I'm fine with that to a degree. You get, get in a crazy situation, you kind of numb out a little bit. But they didn't give her any meat, so I don't care. I'm just missing the original Erica and Tony so much. I know. They were great. Connor Cruz as Daryl Jenkins. Yeah, he is the son of Tom Cruise. Uh-huh. Daddy didn't teach him anything. He only has two movie credits to his name, this and Seven Pounds. Yep. He plays younger Will Smith in that film, right? Uh-huh. He's real bad. He's not good. No. He's not good at all. Oh, well. <laughs> Please escape your cult. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Brett Cullen as Sergeant Tom Eckert. Oh, yeah. Before this, Falcon Crest, Where Sleeping Dogs Lie, Wyatt Earp, Apollo 13, Something to Talk About, The Replacements, Ghost Rider, The Runaways, The Dark Knight Rises. After this, 42, the new season of True Detective. Oh, yeah. And he's going to be in Joker. He's good. You know, he's a patriarch of a of a tough family. I like him. He's not in the movie very long, but he does his job. I don't hate the turn that they took from the original mm-hmm. where Harry Dean Stanton fights for them and we, we do see the death, but it's a much different, mm-hmm. distant kind of love, whereas this is... I don't hate the turn except that I hate the message it sends. Yeah. Because the other one is very bullshit male toxic Mm -hmm. but it's also realistic in that way of like guys are terrible dads sometimes but i taught you how to survive at least yeah this one feels very much like you have to love me because i've treated you tough and i'm like okay fuck off with that it's fine i don't care will yun lee as captain cho he's pretty good he plays this i mean he plays what he was given and he's interesting he's very stern I have no... I. It's nothing special, and that's not his fault at all. No. I miss the interesting dialogue in those camps. That's something that we got in the original is Bella having to talk through these different guys. What else has he been in? Die Another Day, Torque with Adam Scott. Oh, okay. <laughs> that terrible movie. Yeah. Electra, Total Recall 2012, mm-hmm. and after The Wolverine, San Andreas, Falling Water, Rampage, and The Good Doctor. Okay. We have Kenneth Choi as Lieutenant Smith. Mm-hmm. You may remember him as Henry Lynn from Sons of Anarchy yep. and Principal Marita from Spider-Man Homecoming. Oh, yeah. No, I love that guy. Every time I see him, I'm excited because he's a great actor. Love him. He's great. I liked that they did the little turn of him pretending to be on the side of the Korean officers. That was kind of fun because we didn't have that in the last film. So that was cool. I mean, they're special ops, so they need somebody who can infiltrate. Yeah, I like that little that bit, you know, someone who knows that language. So that was cool. I liked it. But most importantly, our last name on this list is Jeffrey Dean Morgan as Sergeant Major Andrew Tanner. (sighs) He's so pretty. He's a dead fucking ringer for for Powers Booth. Booth. Yeah, no, it's just like he does look like he could be his son, his nephew something. But he is so much more real yes. than how they wrote Powers Booth. Yeah, I totally agree. Because he's a very hardened military guy. And he's like, I fucking hate these kids. I hate every last one of them. Well, actually, I don't think he's that hardened. I think he's a very by the book military guy. Yeah, no, no. But he has been hardened by this stuff. Yeah. And I just I love his commentary that he is dealing with a bunch of kids. Yes. I love it. I, it's so great. But at the same time, these are the people I got to work with. He respects them. But, ugh, 
hate them. I hate every last one of them. They when, jump when out the fucking window. And he's got to do this too. And just, it's just like, clearly I'm in my 40s and you're going to make me do this shit now. Uh, why? Yeah, no, we love Jeffrey D. Morgan though. He's got more humor. That's the most important part. Yes. Because that other movie is pretty fucking humorless. Oh, yeah, they did a little better job with cracking a few jokes here and there. Which is just necessary when yes. you're dealing with something this way. With, with any action film... If the action itself does not create a little bit of humor, you have to throw in some jokes and some commentary on what is happening. Especially when it's fucking teenagers, man. Yeah. Like I think that's one of the things that with like all of the rock action films, they do a very good job at adding in some humor and some commentary on how stupid these situations are. I mean, some of that is the rock's good at comedy. So he, he is hilarious when he wants to be. I I enjoy the rock. All right. There's no good trivia for this movie. Cool. How many spray paint cans, I guess? No, trackers. How many trackers? No, how many injectable trackers? Injectable trackers. I'm going to go with two because I didn't hate it, but it's not very good. But it's, going- it's mostly the writing. I think if we had some better writing, these actors would have had a little bit easier time. I'm going it? one and a half because okay. I actually hated the story a lot more. Okay. I really liked what Milius was putting together, and I know he was hamstrung by the studio mostly. Mm-hmm. And... Seeing this, I go, everybody on this production staff knew what they were doing, and they were putting out not just a propaganda film, but a kind of shitty propaganda film. Mm. Like, if you're going to propaganda, make it count. (laughs) Really make it worth your effort. Yeah. It just, that's something that really irks me. Just don't go watch this one. If you're interested, watch the original. It's really interesting to watch. I, you you can miss this easily yeah. unless it's on basic cable for some random reason. Mm-hmm. I agree. All right. Well, what's up next time? Next time is one that I will shame you into oblivion that you have not seen. And it is probably the most obvious and most famous Swayze film ever. It's such a special moment. And also, fun fact, this movie came out on the exact day David was born. And year. It is Dirty Dancing. <laughs> I cannot wait for this. Oh, it's going to be wonderful. Yes. All right. Until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.